You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Stand with me to uh, honor the reading of God's Word. Our scripture today is going to be in Psalm 42 and 43. Uh, you can follow along in your, in your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat back, and you can find the Psalm 42 on page 469. As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say, my God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an unholy people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, Our missionary this week is the Coletti family. They work with uh, Family Life, uh, the crew ministries. Uh, Father God, we just lift up the Coletti family to you. We ask that you be with them, help them to foster to marriages, uh, to spread your news of hope in times of despair. I ask that you uh, bless the Coletti family as they relocate from Little Rock to Colorado Springs. I ask that you uh, provide the financial resources and uh, provision for that. And Father God, I also pray for Keith and the message that he's about to deliver today. I ask that you open our hearts and remind us of the good news and the salvation that you bring. Um, please be with us as we continue to listen and, uh, and open our hearts. Amen. Good morning. I am not on Sudafed today, but I wish I was. <laughs> still, I'm much better, but, but I'm still dealing with some of the crud. Hey, we're going to have uh, the ushers come forward and take the morning's offering. If you're visiting with us, do not feel obligated to give. We're so happy that you're here. But if you could let us know how you found out about us by filling out that communication card, that would be awesome. 
Again, to reiterate, the 3x5 card that you uh, should have received when you walked in for your questions, uh, start, start writing down your questions. And at the end of this sermon series, uh, sometime in March, we're going we're gonna to take some time and, and I'll answer some of those questions. Uh, one Sunday, when I was experiencing just a deep, uh, this is a bad season of ministry. It just felt bad. Felt like I had led the church as far as I could lead it. It was the church that I planted. Uh, that uh, that the, that Sunday, I uh, had a friend, close friend, who said something to me that was per- that hurt. Uh, I don't think he intended to to hurt my feelings, but it it, def- it hurt my feelings. Uh, weeks previous to that, I was when I had my cycling accident when I fractured my pelvis and tore my labrum. And uh, it was, it was, I was just feeling pretty miserable. I sat down in our kitchen in our Colorado home at the time and uh, after church. And uh, Nathan's, you know, also I was overwhelmed by Nathan's narcolepsy and just trying to figure that out and figure out how, how to treat uh, his disease. And, and I sat down at the island in our kitchen and I said, and I was serious when I said this, it would be easier on everybody if I just died. And I meant it. I wasn't suicidal, but I just was not liking life. And I've had seasons in my life where I've experienced that, where I've experienced, you know, another word to, to describe it as despondency, this, this, this heaviness, this grief, this sadness. Our family has been touched by suicide, or not suicide, but by depression. Uh, we saw this, how bad postpartum depression can be. Roy Ma experienced that, struggling with a disease. Nathan has wrestled with depression. Our family's been touched by it. And, there are, and as a pastor, I've seen it as well in churches that I've been a pastor of. And there are five things that I learned that, uh, about depression. They're not exhaustive, but there are five things that I learned about depression and things that I've learned about human emotions over the years that I want to share with you just to kind of set the tone for, for this message. One is this, depression is a deceiver. It's a deceiver that will make your problems and circumstances seem much bigger than they really are. Depression is a deceiver that will, make, will lead you to believe your circumstances and problems are bigger than what they are. Two, emotions cannot just be turned on and off like a light switch doesn't help when you tell somebody who's sad or, or depressed, get over it. Just do this or do that. And the emotions are not a light switch that can be turned on and off. Uh, how you feel is not always a reflection of reality or what is true. That's the third thing I learned. Your ability to feel emotion is a gift from God and a part of your DNA as someone who was fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Emotions are not a bad thing. They're a gift from God, given to you from our Creator. And uh, five, no emotion, good, bad, happy, or sad, can last forever. The longing in us all is to be happy, right? Anybody? Who wants to be happy? All of us. It's in us. We want that. 
The longing in us all is to, is, is to experience peace because with peace comes joy, right? We all want that. The kind of peace that we were made for is what the Bible calls shalom. It's the kind of peace that can only be experienced with the presence of God. Uh, Cornelius Plantina, in his book, Not the, Way, uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, said this of peace. He said, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. Shalom is the way things ought to be, but our experience is it's not the way they, they are, right? It's not, the way, it's, it's not the way things currently are. In fact, in his book, he said something that, that really stuck with me over the years. Sin vandalizes shalom. Sorrow after time can turn into depression. Disease, unfulfilled expectations, broken promises, unrealized dreams, death, all these things can cause depression. This kind of depression is, is uh, also known as situational depression. There are two types of depression I'm going to mention. There's situational depression, and then there's clinical depression. Clinical depression can happen uh, a number of ways. One, situational depression, if you're camping in that, or if you're swimming in that for long enough, can evolve into clinical depression. And, then, uh, and also, clinical depression can happen because of genetic factors that you were born with. Some people are born with uh, a, a clinical depression, with a genetic, uh, genetic factors that just result in that. So they struggle with that all their lives. Uh, major life events, such as abuse or other forms of trauma, can result in clinical depression. Some, you know, in this church, you know, have suffered some pretty horrific forms of trauma that have resulted in depression. Alcohol and drug dependence can cause clinical depression. Millions of people suffer from clinical depression, and almost all people experience situational depression at some point in their life, right? Any of you have experienced sadness? Just everybody's happy in here, right? Yeah. And, and some of you have experienced a sadness that just it feels, it felt like you were just sw swimming in it, right? You ever experienced that where it just doesn't seem to let up, where your grief and your sorrow is just there? That could be a result of situational depression. There are so, even examples in the Bible of very godly people who suffered from forms, different forms of depression. Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. Loved God. God used him to do some really crazy and awesome things. One thing that God used him to do was, he, he, it was to expose the false prophets of Baal who they worshiped this other God. And, and if you ever read about it in, in the Bible and in, in 1 Kings, it's, pretty, it's almost comical where God just shows up. And uh, before God showed up, while the prophets of Baal were calling on their false god, Elijah taunted them, said, hey, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he had to go relieve himself. You know, why don't you just shout a little louder? And then, then when Elijah stepped up to the plate and said, and prayed to God, God, I want you to, to show who you are, God did that. It was a mountain high experience. And then, after God used Elijah to defeat these false prophets, uh, a queen, some lady said, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah went from mountain high top experience 
to this valley where he ran and fled for his life, hid in a cave, and was convinced that he was the only prophet of God on planet Earth. And God had to minister to his heart um, and, and work with him to get him out of his depression. There was Job, who lost about just, just, lost just about everything in his life. And, uh, and he even said, he concluded in Job chapter 3, that it would have been better if he were never even born. Another example is Jeremiah, who is known as the weeping prophet. Again, a godly, God-fearing man who walked with God is known as the weeping prophet. At one point, he was convinced that God had abandoned him and left him to himself all by himself. And he said in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, these words, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Have you ever experienced that before? You ever felt like peace is just kind of, it's just beyond your grasp, beyond your reach? In his book on suffering, Randy Alcorn said this. uh, If you're taking notes, he wrote a book, If God is Good, it's on suffering. I, I commend it to you. But he said this. In his book, Sadness, Grief, and Times of Depression are part of life under the curse, the curse of sin. God gives us the resources, including his people, to move forward. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to today. That there are examples in the Bible, there are principles that that we glean from the Bible of how we can wrestle with and deal with and address our depression. And the first is this to realize that you have purpose. I think that's the first place that we need to start. Because like I said, depression is a deceiver. Not only will it convince you that your circumstances or your problems are bigger than what they are, but it will also convince you that you're all alone and that nobody understands you or, or nobody cares for you. And, and so we start with, and the psalmist starts with, realizing that you have purpose. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in Psalm 139 because we did that for two weeks already. We will spend most of our time in Psalm 42 and 43, but when you read Psalm 139, you read about a God who made us in his image. We're, you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the, of the living God, that you were made for a relationship with God. That was last week's sermon, right, where we talked about loneliness. Well, the principles that we learned last week are similar principles that we, that, that, that we can use in addressing our depression or when we're, when we're grieving. Uh, you were made for a relationship with God. Secondly, you, you were made for a community with God's people. And thirdly, you were made for the purpose of serving within a community in God's mission. None of those things has anything to do with your ability. It has everything to do with your value as an image-bearing human being of the living God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of you need to hear this this morning. You are not a mistake. And, you are, and, and, and there's a God in creation who loves you and is, and is committed to you and is for your joy. He's for your joy. You are valuable, not because of what you can do or offer in life, but because of the God who made you in his image. The apex of God's love for you is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read these words. Let's read this together. Ready? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And uh, I said this actually every week since we started this sermon series. If, if, you were, if, if you don't have anything guiding you in the darkness of your despair, which the psalmist said in, one thir- in Psalm 139, he said, you know, you, you know everything there is to know about me. You, you're everywhere at the same time. You raise up a, a barricade around me, and, and in the darkness, in the darkness, I, I, I need you to guide me. If I'm, if I'm going to where the sun is setting or where the sun is rising, uh, if I ascend to heaven or, or down to the grave, uh, you need to guide me, God. I need your hand to guide me. I, you know, actually, right after the service today, I'll be doing a wedding. And uh, uh, nobody's invited. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, I don't think. Um, anyway. Uh, so, which means after the service you need to leave. But, um, but what I've said to this couple over the course of four weeks of their premarital counseling and what I've said to every other couple is if the person sitting next to you is the greatest reality in your life, you're setting yourself up for some serious disappointment. Uh, we need one who is bigger than us. One who reminds us of who we are, and that is God. And that's what the psalmist does. You know, in, this, in Psalm 42 and 43, we are formed and knitted together in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. We need to begin with realizing that we have purpose. And then second, remembering who you are. Remembering who you are. There's this, you know, Psalm 42 and 43 is one song. Chapters and verses in the Bible are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the content is, and Psalm 42 and 43 is one song. There are several things that are repeated in this song, but it begins with that coffee cup verse. As you see on coffee cups and Christian t-shirts and on cards, it's really pretty, right? Uh, as the deer, right? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You know, I, I, I just long for you. And, and it sounds nice, and it sounds cute, and, and it sounds like it should be on, on our t-shirts or it should be on a coffee mug, but that is not the point of the psalmist. The sons of Korah are not in a place that's happy. They, they feel abandoned by God. In fact, the next picture is really how the psalmist is feeling. I've shown up to the place where I used to, co- where I used to show up where you were present, and when I've come and I have arrived, there is nothing there. I am thirsty to the point of I'm going to die and I showed up and it's dry. Where are you, God? Where are you? Have you ever asked that question? Where are you? Depression is a deceiver and will often convince us that we are alone. It will often convince us that God has abandoned you. And the psalmist is like, where, at, where are you? My, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when shall I come and appear before you? He goes on in verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Meaning, I am not sleeping. And the only thing I can do is just is, is weep. My heart is crushed. I feel alone. Where are you, God? Where are you? 
Later on in the psalm, he says, you know, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. In verse 7, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to be in the ocean. Anybody, have you ever swum in the ocean? Who? Wow, okay, great. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever been overcome by waves, but it's not fun. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, like, I, I, I can't even keep my head above the water. Your waves keep on going, crashing above my head. I am drowning. I am drowning in my depression and in my grief. Where are you? And then in chapter 43, verses 1 and 2, he said, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In fact, when you read through these two chapters, this one psalm, what is repeated by the enemy twice is, where is your God? Where is your God? And the psalmist's response is, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? In other words, what he heard was, your God does not love you. Your God does not care for you. And his response is, why don't you love me, God? Why don't you love me? And then he does something that we learn here that, that, that we ought to do with our own hearts. Because our hearts are fickle, right? Our emotions are fickle. They, they, they ebb and flow. Uh, recedes, and then, you know, you know it's, like tide, it's like the tide of the ocean. And... Um, and we need to remind ourselves of certain truths. And the psalmist understood this. He, he said in verse 5, he, 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 it's the first time he does this in this song, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you depressed? And why are you in turmoil within me? And this is what he does. He preaches to his own heart. He speaks to his own heart. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. You know what he's doing? He's, he's telling himself, he's reminding himself of good news. Good news that he feels right now is distant from him. Good news that he knows intellectually is true, but, he's, but his heart is not feeling it. His soul's not feeling it in, in, at the moment. But he reminds himself of this good news. So you, you, you can hope in the God who is all-knowing. That's what he's telling his heart. Heart, you, you, you know that God is all-knowing. You, you know this. You know this about God. You, you know he's everywhere at the same time. You, you know that to be true. And you know that he's all-powerful. And because he's all those things wrapped up in one, and because he is perfect, he is faithful. He is faithful. And even though my heart is telling me right now he is not because of how I'm feeling, I know, I know from my experience that he is faithful. And I know from my understanding of who God is, he is faithful. That's what he's doing. He's preaching to his own heart. I, I've say, I say this to, to, to people all the time, and I do it for my own self. Preach the gospel to yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something that we need to hear once and one time only. It's something our hearts and our, our minds need to be reminded of all throughout our lives. That there is a God who's, who loves us so, so much that he sent his son to die in our place 
after he lived a life that we, it was impossible for us to live. He died in our place. Why? Because of God's infinite love for you and for me. And he validated that love when Jesus rose on the third day. We've got to remind ourselves of that. We've got to remind ourselves of Romans chapter 8, which I, I repeat over and over again. You know why I repeat it over and over again as your pastor? And why maybe some of you are like, he's saying it again, Romans chapter 8. It's because I have to remind my heart of it all the time. That there is, Keith Miller, you need to hear this, Keith, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And, Keith, you need to hear that there is nothing, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, not even your own hand that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not death, not government, not angels, not demons. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Because it is God who's holding me in his hand. The psalmist is reminding himself of these truths. And we need to remind ourselves of these truths also. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in him. Because depression is a deceiver. And one of the lies it will try to convince you of is that you are alone and no one cares about you. And the, the, the fact is, you are not alone, and there is a God that infinitely cares for you, and there are people around you that he has raised up that care for you as well. Which leads me to the third thing. Not only uh, realize you know, your purpose, that you have purpose, and remember who you are as a child of God, one who has value because of who God is, but to recall what is real. To recall what is real. Depression distorts your reality. If you have ever experienced depression, it distorts reality. When I sat down in my kitchen at that granite table, I said something that was absolutely not true, but it seemed true, that life would be easier on everybody if I just died. Depression distorts everything around us. You know, it even distorts our level of pain. Did you know that? It's been proven that if you're, and it's, it's like the secular cycle that people who suffer from chronic debilitating pain or disease uh, experience, where you're swimming in your pain and your suffering, and, and, and what's happening is you're going into the deeper and deeper state of depression, and you know what the depression is doing? It's elevating and raising up uh, your, your pain experience. It's lowering your tolerance of pain and making it more unbearable. It does that. It also could deceive you into thinking that dulling the senses through food, alcohol, or narcotics will make, you, will make you feel better. And the reality is what, brothers and sisters? It doesn't. It makes you go deeper into that depression. Depression can also make you want to withdraw from people when what you really need most is the support of a community around you. The psalmist does something that teaches us how to address the lies that we tend to believe while suffering, uh, either from situational or clinical depression. And he says it in verse 4. He says, these things I remember. I call this preaching, not, not preaching the gospel yourself, I already talked about I call this signposts of faith. So you've got to preach the gospel, preach good news to your heart, remind yourself of it. Even if you don't believe it to be true, you, say, you, you remind yourself, okay, doubting heart, you need to be reminded of these things. And then the second thing is to remember the, the times where God has shown up. I call them signposts of faith. We all have them. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, 
how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. You know what he's doing? He's saying, I remember the day where, where I showed up and the stream of, of, of living water that is God was there right, right before me to drink and to enjoy. And I know because that was my experience, I will experience that again. I remember this. For me, I have certain signposts that God reminds me of. I remember how he met me on Route 1 on July 12, 1991, when I was hit by a car before I even knew who he was. He, 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 he put me in front of a car, and as I lay in the middle of that road, God in his grace and his love and his kindness allowed a lady from my father's church to drive by who didn't know me, stop, start praying for my soul, and cover my body with a blanket while I was in shock. That's a signpost. Another signpost is Kurt and Shauna, and their role, their role in my life. Shauna, my friend, who I shared with you, uh, died of cystic fibrosis, complications on the operating table. But uh, before that happened, I, I had a $4,000 bill for seminary. I knew God called me to, to finish my seminary, to, to do my Master of Divinity program, and, and I, we had a $4,000 bill. I didn't know how we were going to pay it. I didn't tell anybody about it. But then I got a call from Kurt and Shauna one day, and they said, we've been praying about this, and we really believe that God wants us to give you $4,000. That was a signpost that God has frequently used in my life when, when I experienced seasons of doubt. Another signpost is when God miraculously healed me. He miraculously healed me. I had seven cal uh, legions of calcified plaque in my left coronary artery, and I had a significant likelihood of a cardiovascular event. That's what the test results sh showed. And then I went to a conference and, and uh, just all jacked up over, over this news, and God met me on that Saturday morning in a way I can't explain. It's just miraculous. And uh, I remember him speaking into my heart, saying, well, why, are you, why, are you so, why are you so upset about dying? That's not so bad. And, and then I just felt this overwhelming sense of peace. Then I had my heart catheterization, and the doctor went in, and he said, Keith, uh, there's nothing there. Like, your arteries are completely clean. That's a signpost of faith. Here's what is real. God is real. That's another signpost of faith. And this is what the psalmist does. He's like, I know who you are, God, and I know my understanding of who you are is not jiving, it's not lining up with my experience right now, and because you're unchanging, you don't change, I know that you're real. I know, I, I, and I know that, that, that whatever's going on here needs to be reminded of who you are. God knows how you are feeling, and is aware of your circumstances. That's a, those are the first six verses in Psalm 139. He knows a thought before it's even, on your, even in your mind or on your tongue. God is present and is for you even though you feel alone. That's verses 7 through 12 in Psalm 139. God will not abandon you, nor will he forsake you. That's another truth in the Bible. Here's also what is real. You listening? I heard this from, from Rick Warren, whose son, who struggled with clinical depression, uh, died by suicide. Rick Warren said this, suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. 
If you're struggling with suicide, like suicidal thoughts, you need to hear that. Suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. And then he went on to say, suicide will do far more damage than address your problem. It'll do far more damage than address your problem. And then finally, reach out to God and his people. That's what the psalmist you know, discovers here. He, 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 we see it in verse 8 of chapter 42. He said, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. Um, what he says is, 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 is like, you know, in the midst of all that I'm experiencing, I know this to be true. It, when we read books or paragraphs, our minds tend to think from top to bottom, you know, chapter to chapter. But in the Bible, there is, and in poetry too, there is what they call chiastic structure. And so, so sometimes the emphasis, the point, is in the middle of the poem or in the middle of the story. And in this case, it's in verse 8, which is directly in the middle of this song between Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. It's unlike anything else that the psalmist said uh, up to this point or even after. He says, by day the Lord commands his what? His steadfast love. Do you know what steadfast love is? There's a Hebrew, the Hebrew word for it. It's one word. It's hesed. It's covenantal love. His covenantal love, his unbreakable uh, covenant with you is there. And, and the psalmist reminds himself of that. And you know what he's saying in verse 8? It's not dependent on me. Like, God's love has nothing to do with me and what I, with what I do. It has everything to do with him and him alone. He is a God who commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I didn't mention this in the first service, but, but I'll mention it here. That uh, I think it's um, Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 3, somewhere in chapter 3, I want to say verse 14, um, there's this passage, there's this beautiful passage where it says that the Lord sings over his people. He sings over his people. Like even when we feel like he's abandoned us, the psalmist is reminding himself, God is singing over me. That's how much he loves me. He's singing over me. At, and at night his song is with me. Depression can deceive us into thinking that, or into believing that God is not good to us. But here the psalmist says, no, he's good. I'm the one who's fickle. I'm the one who, you know, like when you read the Psalms, that's kind of like our, I feel like this is my experience sometimes. You know, God, you're awesome. You're great. You're here. You're with me. You're walking hand in hand with me. And then you go to the next chapter. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? You ever read that in the Psalms? Right? Have you ever experienced that in your life? Yeah. His covenantal love is there. And then later on in the, the song, he says in Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4, he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Sound familiar to Psalm 139? May your right hand guide me in the darkness of night. And here he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to, the God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the, with the lyre, O God, my God. I mean, I'll break out my guitar and I'll sing praises to you. That day is coming. That's what he says here. It's coming. He says, I will go to the altar where God and his people can be found. 
He's not saying, I'm on my way there right now. He's saying, I'm preaching the gospel to my heart. I'm reminding myself of who God is. I'm recalling what is real. And what is real is God does not, he doesn't change. I change, he doesn't. I'm remembering who he is. I'm remembering that I am a child of the living God. Then he, he recalls the reality of the faithfulness of God. And then he reaches out to God. That's what we see in this song. Now, the depression is not an easy fix. Uh, it's not, there's not uh, an easy button you can push. Like, oh, you're depressed? Just do this, and it's, and it's gone. We tend to treat it that way. Some people use alcohol. Some people use drugs. Some people uh, use other means, uh, destructive means to do it. There's no easy fix. Even, and praise God for, for physicians who, who discover and have and, and put, uh, made available medicines that uh, medication that can help with clinical depression. But there is no easy fix. There is no easy fix. Um, but what we see in the Bible is that if, if you find yourself, if you find your heart just overwhelmed with grief and sadness, if you find yourself depressed, that, that what the psalmist does here is he takes these little steps forward. Like I... I know I have purpose, you know? Like, I, I, know, I know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. I, I don't feel that way right now, but I know it to be true. I know that I am a child of the living God, and I belong to Him. And, and uh, I, I know what reality is, you know? I, know? I know that God is real. He doesn't change. Like, and he, he is here. Like, He knows my thoughts even before they're on my lips, and He, and he is always present and he is and he is all powerful and he had, I'm fearfully wonderfully made in his image and and so you remind yourself of those things and then you're like I I know where the people of God you know are I know I know where my community is I don't feel like being around anybody right now but I know that what I need is help not just not, not just me crying out to God, I need his people to surround me, to remind me of his steadfast love and to lift me up. I need people who are going to encourage me to love and good, need, good deeds. And the only way that's going to happen is if I'm rubbing shoulders with, with, with God's people. These are little steps, right? It's not an easy button, but it, it is a prescription that God has put in the Bible, you know, for, for our good. And... Um, and we see it here in the psalm. I'm gonna. BJ's here. Oh, there she is. And uh, I asked BJ to come and share her story. She uh, she'll share how how God, you know, helped her discover grace for two brothers. And uh, I, I want her to share her story. So she's gonna come up and um, share with you her experience, depression and and loss. Good morning. When I speak, I usually just speak from my heart. And I actually told myself I need to have some notes, you know, this morning because I knew we were on time constraints. I think the first service, I didn't really look at them. So I'll uh, hopefully give the same message. I, I have several roles that I've had in my life, uh, daughter, sister, aunt wife, friend, 
Um, being a grandma, that's just been the biggest kick in the pants ever. I've enjoyed that one. I had a friend uh, many, many years ago that told me that being a mother is the highest calling from God. And I truly believe that. I've been so blessed. Uh, I'm, I'm a mother to three wonderful sons. Uh, Bo, uh, he should be on your right. I have to turn around. No, he's on your left. Um, he's our oldest. Um, Brett is in the middle. He's our youngest. And then Blair is our middle son. It was uh, Bo Michael, Blair Matthew, and Brett Mitchell. Their last name was Wagner, so I always had fun with that. I always told everyone I had three BMWs. <laughs> Being a single parent uh, for many, many years, I you know, never owned one, but uh, I had three, and they were the richest blessings of my life. I'm also a survivor of suicide loss. We have lost two of our three sons to suicide. We lost our son, Brett, at the age of 19 uh, to suicide, and Bo uh, at the age of 26. It, it was kind of a really pivotal before and after time in my life. And before was before December 1st, 2005, when Brett died. By all uh, appearances and everything that we went through in our daily lives, we were, we were just normal. You know, all three boys were into sports. If you asked me how many children do I have, I have three. If you ask me how many kids I have, that varies because there were always, you know, three or four more boys at the house. Uh, Sam can attest that all the, the boys and their friends call me Mama Beach. Before December 1st, 2005, if you'll indulge me just a, a quick moment, um, I called the house one day. And Bo answered, and I said, what are you guys doing? And he said, well, we all came out and played football. And I thought to myself, well, let's see, did you bring the pads? Yep. I was going to bring pizza home, you know, the take and bake kind. So I thought, okay, Iron Man football, let's see, that's 7, 7, 14, throw in three or four more. I thought, no, I probably have maybe 20 kids at my house, so that's going to be a lot of pizza. So when I got home, I walked into the living room. I have to stand up to do this. And those of you who have boys, or if you are a boy, or you were a boy, you'll appreciate this. But there were about 18 to 20 boys in my living room, and they were sprawled, as boys do, like all over every surface. And uh, they all looked at me, and in different tones of voice, whatever, they all looked at me and they went, what's up? And they wouldn't let me leave the living room until I went, what's up? So uh, a couple, three days later, at the, one of the East football games, a couple of the kids that had been out at the house uh, were sitting in the stands. And so I walked by, and as I looked at them, I went, what's up? And as I was walking away, one of them said to the other one, Blair's mom is just so cool. <laughs> so that was definitely a before story. On the morning of December 1st, 2005, it was about six o'clock in the morning, and my doorbell rang, and you know how you look through the little peephole in the door? It's a little, di little distorted. And I reached down, there was an officer on, I could see through the peephole, there was an officer and there was a lady next to him, and as I reached down to grab that handle of that door, I thought to myself, my life is not going to be the same when I opened this door. 
the officer said, we know we need to take you to the hospital. Um, there's been a shooting, and Brett has shot himself. So sitting in this room somewhere in the hospital, there are people coming in, people going out. That day was really kind of a, a blur. And I remember the doctor came in, and he was sitting there talking to me, and nothing he said was making sense. The only way I can really explain it is that it really was the Charlie Brown teacher voice, right? You guys remember that? You know, it's just wah, 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 and nothing he was saying was making sense. So I finally stopped him and I said, Doc, you gotta just, you know, you just need to be straight with me, what's going on? And the six words that I'll never forget for the rest of my life, he said, your son will not survive this. Our lives changed that day. Um, you know, that of my life as a mother, the lives of our entire family. Tragically, three years, seven months, and four days later, our oldest son, Bo, died by suicide at the age of 26. And I remember sitting outside in the backyard. It was, you know, the nice day, August. And for some reason, I happened to be by myself for a little bit. And, you know, I just prayed to God. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this again. How do we get through this? And I just remember thinking, you know, there, there has to be grace for my two sons. There has to be grace for these two brothers. The whisper from God that day was what started uh, the nonprofit foundation here in Cheyenne. And, you know, we've done a lot of good deeds, a lot of things that I think have made a difference when we talk about suicide. Because suicide is hard to talk about. You know, it gets stuck in the back of our throat, and we're like, well, if we talk about it, people will do it. And that's just not true. Um, shortly after the foundation started, and Sam was, bless her heart, was involved in this, we came up with this little idea to get into the hands of students something that they could carry with them, something that would help them. And it's just a little Steps of Grace card. We actually got that out to every student in the state of Wyoming from grades 7 through 12 in all 42 school districts. We distributed over 25,000 cards. And on the back of that card is just, you know, hey, if you're, if you're thinking about suicide, please take, take a step back. If you know someone who is struggling, take a step forward. Many years later, I was sitting at a restaurant here in Cheyenne, and this young man walked up to me, and he goes, hey, you're that grace lady. I got called that a lot because I couldn't remember my name. I said, yeah. And he pulls out his wallet, and he takes his card out. And he says, I still have this. And I've used it. So we know that the foundation has made a difference. We know that the people that are involved with the foundation has made a difference. We know that. But it's not enough. Suicide is still a crisis in our community and our state. You know, for those who have lost someone to suicide, I, I think that question of why, you know, is certainly there. For those of you who haven't lost someone to suicide, you're thinking, why? Why didn't that person just ask for help? How hard can that be? You know, and Keith touched upon that about 
you know, what depression does to you. I would offer you this challenge in the next few days if you can go through the drive-through, maybe have a straw from your drinking bottle, something. But I would like you to just spend a couple of minutes and look through the end of a straw. It's kind of like that game I spy with my little eye, right? So I can sit here and see all of you, but if I'm going to put the straw up to my eye or if I'm going to play the game, all of a sudden I can't see people over here. I can only see what's in that very narrow vision. If I take it away, I can see again. So just think about someone who is going through that situational depression or they've got things going on in their life that they can't control or they think they can't control. And as things in their life get worse, the focus gets a little more narrow and a little more narrow and a little more narrow until all they can see is what is at the end of that straw. They can't see the solutions that might be out here for them because where are they focused at? Right there. And I think if we can think about that when someone is going through something, it's easier to understand how maybe someone could get to that point. They don't just, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's usually a long journey that, you know, maybe they've tried to get some help or, you know, they've tried to talk to someone and that hasn't happened. I think another solution is uh, that we just have to take time for people. We live in such a busy, busy world, don't we? It's too busy, really. When is the last time you've done this? I'm sure everyone in this room, if I asked you to raise your hand, you would say, yeah, I've done that. Hi, Keith, how you doing? Where am I at when Keith answers? Because what do we expect to hear? I'm fine. I'm good, right? But if we just stop and take time, you know, Keith, how are you doing today? And we stop and we listen for the answer. Maybe that person isn't doing fine and they aren't doing good. But in the busy, busy world that we live in, they just say, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. And they're really not. I think if you're concerned enough about someone that you think, gosh, I wonder if that person is thinking about suicide, chances are they've had that thought too. And it's scary. It's scary to step out of our comfort zone and say, gosh, I'm really worried about you. I wonder if you've thought about suicide. That's hard to say. But sometimes... When we ask that question, that person is like, oh my gosh, somebody noticed that I'm not fine and I'm not good. A little over a year after um, Bo died, we flew Blair home. He was in Michigan. And uh, he and I spoke at East High School. All three of the boys graduated from East. And we did two assemblies, and that was you know, there were probably, I don't know, five, six hundred kids in each assembly, and that's very difficult to get that large of a group of kids to sit still, <laughs> right? You could have heard a pin drop when Blair got up and spoke uh, to the students that day. And there's something he said that I'll never forget. 
He said, you know, my brothers didn't want to die. They didn't want their life to end. They just wanted that period of their life to be over. They didn't want to die. I give my message a lot. Um, and I, I say, well, I give a secular talk and then I give my faith-based talk. I mean, it's still the same message. But I'm here to tell you that depression is real and Satan is real. We talk about having angels among us. Why is it so hard for us to believe that Satan has his own army out there? Right? There is evil out there in the world. I've had people ask me, you know, do you really think your sons are in heaven? I do. Because right at the very last second, the very last millisecond, God grabbed them and said, Satan, you can't have them. They're mine now. So I do believe that they're in the arms of God and of Jesus. But we have to do, what we have to do as a, commun as a community, though, is realize that suicide is real. Depression is real. And to have that conversation really is the start of what we can do to hopefully, you know, stop suicide and reduce suicide in our community. In closing, I, you know, I had one of my dear friends that uh, we were talking one day and I just looked at her and I said, well, you know, God has prepared me my whole life for this. <laughs> and she went, what? She goes, no, God wouldn't take Bo and Brett, you know, in order for you to have to go through this and, and then start the foundation and do all that. And I said, no, that's not, that's not what I mean. I said, God has prepared me my whole life, though, for, you know, whatever reason that I'm able to do this now. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I truly believe that us, all of us, as a community, we can all make a difference. Um, you know, depression is real, and it's hard. And our, our people in our communities and across our state and across our nation are dying by suicide. So I think we can all make a difference. And really, sometimes we just have to reach out and just give that person some hope. Sometimes it's just something that little that can make a difference in that person's life. So thank you. Thank you, BJ. Uh, BJ has agreed to be available after the service. Uh, she'll be hanging out in the, in the foyer area. And uh, I would encourage you to, to take the opportunity to, to speak with her. Yeah. And you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention this, but there are resources out there if you're struggling. If you yourself are struggling, I, I really hope that you will take that step forward and ask for help because I'm going to give you two words about losing someone to suicide. It sucks. Grief sucks. Mm -hmm. And every single day I miss my boys. So, you know, if, if you yourself are struggling, I hope that you will reach out to Pastor Keith, reach out to somebody in your faith community, somebody you work with, anyone, 
and know that there is help out there. There's a national suicide prevention hotline. We have a text line. And then on the other side of that coin, if you know someone that you think is struggling, I hope that you'll take that step forward and, and just reach out to them because it's just so important. Yeah. Thank you. And then there's, the, I do have that phone number if anybody's taking notes. 1-800-273-TALK. Uh, so it's 1-800-273-TALK. So if uh, that's one way you can reach out. And obviously, like BJ said, your, your community, uh, people do love you and care, care for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for this time. Thank you for the reality that you are a God who loves, loves us. You love us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image and, and uh, because of uh, our hope in Jesus and the gospel, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, not even our own hand that could separate us from your love. And so we, we, we thank you for that. If there's anyone struggling here, God, that they, with depression, suicidal thoughts, that they would reach out to myself, BJ, anybody on staff, the person next to them, somebody at work. And uh, for, for those of us who, who know somebody or who are just so busy that we just don't take the time that we should to just really listen to how our friends and those around us are doing, that we would do a better job doing that. Thank you for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.